Hello, this is Armchair Quarterbacks. I'm Tara Mahoney. And I'm Jonathan Scott. And we're coming to you today from our respective armchairs. (laughs) (laughs) We're really pleased today to be joined by Steve Pagan, the host of TVO's The Agenda Program, as well as one of Canada's most widely respected journalists. Steve has hosted uh, several federal and provincial election debates, and he's well known for his ability to cultivate relationships and sources across party lines and really get at the heart of stories. And Steve has just recently published a biography of former Premier Bill Davis entitled Bill Davis, Nation Builder and Not So Bland After All. I read it uh, on a plane, and uh, Tara, I think you read it on a train. Um, <laughs> Okay, yep, that happened. Um, It's it's this really engaging read with this uh, lovely combination of historical research as well as just old-fashioned reporting and some personal anecdotes, including an entire chapter based on conversations uh, Steve had up with the Davis family at their cottage on Honey Harbor. What did you like about it? Yeah, Yeah. yeah, you really... Uh, first of all, you really get to know Davis like on a personal level um, after you read this book. You uh, and there's really um, there's really a lot to like. Uh, one of the reasons I loved reading it was like Pagan's clear, um, you know, reverence for this man who, uh, you know, like you said, it had this uh, incredible ability to. Uh, cultivate um, relationships across all parties. Um, uh, you know, you don't see that a lot in politics today. So, uh, and obviously, Pagan has a lot of reverence for that. So it's just nice to read. Yeah, but it, like it's friendly, but it's also he's critical and he's got a story to report. But mm-hmm. it, it just it, it feels like. I mean, I, I said I read it on a plane. I kind of wish I read it at, on a Muskoka chair with, totally. with a beer on a lake, right? Like, it's yeah. very, um, you know, you often hear people say things like, it's an accessible read. Well, it's accessible in the sense that it's basically a conversation of Pagan reporting what happened and mm-hmm. um, then filling in the blanks of things that Davis uh did that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily public knowledge so yeah it's really um really a good read yeah and uh, one more thing i wanted to say was that um it it is written the time period it covers is such a critical part in ontario history right like the province was completely booming at the time um in terms of like growth uh in a lot of different areas and um after reading it I now like walk around the city and I see all this stuff like these plaques of like Leslie Frost laying the first, you know, brick here and like Will Davis like you know uh was like constructed this Oise building like I've seen all these like, you know, these sort of clues from this book uh uh after I've read it. So it's just living in Toronto it's, it was kind of cool to go around the city and see the real um influence of this of this time yeah i mean pagan has one line where he says something like it's still bill davis's ontario Mm -hmm. i think i I think he meant that in the sense of like it's still a politician who's moderate and kind and kind of humble who often wins but Mm -hmm. it's also just straight up true in terms of schools and universities and hospitals and Mm -hmm. other 
just government institutions that exist because of his uh, premiership. Yeah. So we wanted to talk to Steve about why he wrote the book and what lessons he thinks Premier Davis can teach today's leaders. Um, before we cut to that, just a quick moment to say we're sorry. The audio is a bit shaky at a couple parts. You know, we'll try to do better next time. Um, so without further ado, here's Steve Pagan. So, Steve, first of all, welcome to Armchair Quarterbacks, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure, and uh, nice to, um, boy, can I say this out loud, Tara? I think the last time I saw you, you might have been five years old. <laughs> and, Jonathan, you were a little older than that, I think. Um, but, um, I think you were still in university at the time. Anyway, it's uh, good to hang out with you guys. So before we get to the biography, I thought we'd just ask, as kids who grew up on TVO Kids, um, they're no longer doing over-the-air broadcasting outside of the city of Toronto to save a million dollars a year. So I guess we want to know, what does this really mean for uh, how kids and adults across the province view TVO? And, you know, why on earth can't the government or private donors or some combination of the two cough up the money to keep the, uh, the show broadcasting over the air out of the city? Okay, two different questions there, so let me start with the first one. Uh, I think the um, the sad reality is TVO is on a budget like every other institution in the Ontario government, and the people who make the decisions here have to figure out how to make the dollar from the taxpayers of Ontario go as far as they possibly can. And I think the reality is that probably 99% of Ontarians get TVO uh, either through cable or satellite, or on their smartphones or on their computer. And it is a, um, a relatively small number of people who still rely on their airwaves to pick up TVO that way. Uh, for those people, uh, I don't want to diminish their concerns for one second. I think this probably is a real blow to them, and it's, and it's you know, it's sad. It's, um, but it's also, unfortunately, the way it is because these transmitters that are all over Ontario and that were built, you know, 45 years ago are old, they are difficult to maintain, and uh, expensive as hell, as you pointed out, to operate. I mean, a million bucks a year is a pretty tall order. Uh, I don't think anybody around here is happy about the fact that that um, management has had to make this decision in order to, to put the money where um, they think it makes the most sense. But that's where we're at right now. Um, I guess, I mean, I, I don't want to, obviously, I don't want to get the slightest bit political about this, but the reality is when I started here at TVO almost a quarter century ago, I think the allocation from the provincial government was something like $60 million, remember, on a budget that was about $50 billion at the time. Hmm. Now, I think we're getting $40 million a year on a budget that's closer to $140 billion. So we obviously have had to make do with less and are a smaller part of the overall Ontario budget. And I can tell you we're certainly trying our best here to try to find uh, alternative sources of income to supplement uh, what the government, and I mean all governments, what all governments in their wisdom have decided to, to allocate to TVO. Um, but, but that's the story. That's where it's at. Okay. Well, thanks for clearing that up. I wonder what uh, Bill Davis thinks about this, considering he was the person who uh, sort of got TVO up and running, right? Uh, I don't know. I haven't talked to him about it. But I think when Mr. Davis set up TVO as Minister of Education, and we're going back now about 46, 47 years, um, you know, the notion of being able to watch the agenda live on your 
iPhone or BlackBerry on Twitter every night at eight o'clock was not something that <laughs> I think he would have foreseen. Right. So I think the reality is you do have to be relevant to your time. And there are just infinite numbers of, not infinite numbers, but certainly a, a growing percentage of people every year who are watching the agenda and who are watching TVO programming uh, online as opposed to on air. And, uh, you know, when when dollars can only be spread so thin, you got to do the best you can with what you've got. Right. Okay, well, turning to the book, uh, you write a personal reflection about growing up in Bill Davis's Ontario, uh, becoming a reporter when he was finishing up his premiere, and how you've always felt that you were sort of meant to write this biography. So this isn't a biography of some distant political figure uh, or historical figure. It's a guy you could sit down with at the cottage and chat with. So does that change how you write the book? And if so, how? Well, uh, okay, interesting question. Two things I'd observe. Yes, my most formative years growing up in the province of Ontario happened to be Mr. Davis's most um, important years as a politician. Uh, I think I was 10 when he became premier, and he stayed premier until I was 24. So to be sure, he was probably, even more than the current prime minister's father, I think he was probably the one politician in Ontario that I really knew the most about and followed. And as a result, uh, you know, I may have put it a little overly poetically in the book, but yeah, in some respects, I feel this was the guy I really wanted to write about. Um, having written six books before, I was really, you know, I've been trying to convince him for almost a decade to let, you know, hopefully me, but frankly, anybody write his life story. I thought he was a consequential premier with uh, a lot to tell. And, uh, you know, I used various... Um, elements of either persuasion or coercion over the course of the past decade to get him to do it. Uh, at first, gentle hints. And then after that, you know, some outright bullying, you know, Mr. <laughs> Davis, damn it, you have a duty to history to share the stories that you have and what you know. And, you know, part of the other reason I wanted to write this book is that there was another journalist named Claire Hoy, who was a columnist with, the, I think, the Toronto Sun, may might have been with all the Toronto papers, but I certainly remember him best with the Sun. And and I thought Claire wrote a, a very tough and in some ways ungenerous account of the Davis years in the 1980s. And I just thought that this premier deserved better. And uh, and so that was another reason why I very much wanted to write the book. It's not. I mean, he cooperated with me ultimately, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that he he gave me a lot of time. He opened up all his private papers to me. Uh, which was absolutely uh, helpful and essential to the writing of the book. Uh, but he didn't see the manuscript before it went to the publisher. He made no editorial input whatsoever on the book. Uh, and, um, you know, w when he got his copy, uh, I think he opened it with as much uh, surprise, interest, trepidation as anybody else. I'm glad you mentioned Claire Hoy. I read about three quarters of the way through the book, picturing her as this Christina Blizzard-esque figure, only to realize three quarters of the way through that it had been a man the whole time. <laughs> but I guess that was the nature of the press gallery in the 70s. Um, so the subtitle of the book contains the word nation builder. And, you know, you really endeavor to show Davis's contribution to creating Ontario and Canada as we know it. Um, Tara kind of hinted at his role in education with TVO and OISE in the community college system, as well as just building 
all these schools for baby boomer kids. And he's well known for that. But you also talk about um, his role as something of a wingman, eventually, to Prime Minister Trudeau, uh, the elder, during the constitutional debates, which he isn't really well known for. Why is that? And do you think um, we need to really uh, solidify his reputation as a latter-day father of uh, confederation? Well, I don't mind saying that was a huge motive for me in writing the book, because um, you ask why that isn't better known, and I would suggest two reasons. Number one, Mr. Davis is a pretty modest guy, mm. and he's not going to be the kind of politician uh, who takes out billboards at the corner of uh, Young and Bloor to tell everybody what a great job he did, uh, what are we now, 35, 36 years ago, to help the country repatriate the Constitution with the accompanying Charter of Rights and Freedoms. That's just not his way. And the most famous picture, of course, of all of that is Prime Minister Trudeau alongside uh, his Justice Minister, Jean Chrétien. I think Michael Kirby was there, who would have been the federal provincial um, a person responsible for all the constitutional negotiations, and of course the Queen on Parliament Hill uh, in April 1982 on a rainy day signing the Constitution. And absent from that well-known photo, of course, are any of the provincial premiers without whose uh, assent and contribution and cooperation, none of that would have happened. Uh, I don't say Bill Davis should get the lion's share of the credit for the fact that the Constitution was renewed, but the reality is uh, it wouldn't have happened without him. And I tell in the book for the first time uh, a key phone call that he made to Pierre Trudeau late at night one time that had he not made the call and basically, he doesn't like to use the word ultimatum, but he basically told Prime Minister Trudeau, look, here's where we're at, and if you can't put any water in your wine, this isn't going to happen because Ontario will no longer be able to be with you on this. Now, that would have been a huge problem for Pierre Trudeau because, of course, he only had two provinces on side with him. One was Ontario and one was New Brunswick. Um, you know, the notion of having 40% of the population with you in Ontario, okay. The notion of being able to unilaterally repatriate the Constitution with only New Brunswick on side, I think that would have been just impossible uh, to be seen as being a legitimate exercise. And so keeping Bill Davis in the tent was key, and that's why I've told the story, which needs to be told, and why I think this man is, is due a much bigger part of the story of the repatriation deal. Um, so uh, that's a good segue into my next question about uh, political cooperation. Um, your book has a very sentimental undercurrent for the politics of yesteryear. You take a lot of opportunity to mention how congenial and how much easier it was to do things in Bill Davis's time, in part because the politicians got along as people, but you especially lament the fact that politics has become a lot more nasty today. Uh, my question is, do you think that there are politicians like Davis left in this world? I sure hope so. And you know what? I'd, I'd go back even before Bill Davis and remember that a guy named John Robarts, mm. for those of you who went to University of Toronto or who uh, you know live in downtown Toronto, there's a huge library on the U of T campus named after Robarts. Uh, Mr. Davis made sure that that happened, actually. It was, uh, it was his recommendation to the university to do that. But Robarts was a guy who, when he became premier back in 1961, got all the members of the Ontario legislature 
to go up north and take a, I think, a four or five day train ride through northern Ontario, all MPPs, not just the government caucus, where they really could spend a lot of time together and get to know one another. And, it, you know, it's really hard to practice the politics of personal destruction uh, when you've looked at pictures of your grandchildren over several days on a train car. Mm -hmm. And as a result, I think as well, you know, politics back then was less of a full time occup uh, occupation as it is today. Um, you know, a lot of the politicians, probably, you know, two thirds to three quarters of the Ontario legislators at the time all had other jobs. This was something they contributed to public life in, quote unquote, their spare time. It's something they did additionally. You know, over the years, the job has now become a very full time job. And as a result, I guess the stakes are higher and it's a lot meaner and it's played way more for keeps. Um, I guess one of the worst examples I heard of that was uh, in Ottawa. Uh, during the uh, Stephen Harper years, where Michael Ignatieff, the then liberal leader, uh, found himself at an Air Canada counter at seven in the morning buying a ticket to go somewhere and um, walked up to a conservative MP who was at this basically at the counter next. And he started to make conversation. And he saw the whole time that they were talking, this conservative MP sort of looking over his shoulder the whole time, uh, you know, wondering, Ignatieff was wondering what's going on here. And eventually, the Conservative MP acknowledged that uh, he feared he would be in for a whole heap of trouble if he was seen talking to the leader of the opposition in public by a fellow uh, Conservative backbencher or, God forbid, a cabinet minister or somebody from the PMO. Uh, I don't think that's I don't think that's good. Um, you know, I, I, I like my politics more collegial. I think everybody gets elected to go there and do a job, you know, to to work together to find the sweet spot. Uh, where, you know, they can do the public's business and do public good. And the notion that people should be going to Ottawa or going to Queen's Park at Toronto and looking over their shoulders because they're afraid of being seen talking to somebody in a different party. I mean, that's just, I don't like that. Don't like that. And I, and I hope those days are past us. Right. Well, I, I want to continue on, if you don't mind, with that comparison, because both you and Martin Redcon of the Toronto Star have written uh, a couple of times each, I think, about similarities between Premier Davis and Premier Wynne. Um, so just as I'm reading the book, uh, early on, you write that the first drink Davis probably ever took in his life was shortly after uh, he won the leadership in 1971. I, I remember being in the hotel lobby next to Maple Leaf Gardens when Kathleen Wynne won in 2013, and she kind of sheepishly said, I think I'd like, is it called Prosecco? Um, and she, she too rarely drinks. Um, they both remarried. He following the death of his wife, she after coming out and moving in with uh, her partner, Jane. Um, and both, of course, were consequential ministers of education. Um, and then you also quote her near the end of the book where she says, I look to him for inspiration. I'm grateful to have him as a mentor. Uh, so I guess you've written about this um, both in the book and in uh some uh, columns. What similarities do you see between Wynne's current uh, situation and Davis's second term, and what lessons can you draw from his eventual success? Uh, yeah, the comparisons, you've made a good checklist there. I, I would even go further saying that, that uh, you know, Bill Davis in his first term, 1971 to 75, got in lots of trouble frequently. Uh, scandals on his watch, problems on the backbench, problems with cabinet ministers, um, uh, there, you know, um, 
we obviously can make the comparison to Kathleen Wynne, who has had uh, difficulties with cabinet ministers. You think of Glenn Tebow trying to get him in the in the House um, from federal politics. Um, you know, I think the uh, the conservatives back in the day lost a by-election in a riding that had been conservative for 30 years. Uh, Roy McMurtry actually was the guy who lost that. It was in late 1973 in St. George riding in downtown Toronto. And similarly, Kathleen Wynne lost a by-election in Scarborough uh, to Raymond Cho, the conservative, in a riding that had been uh, predictably liberal for 30 years. So uh, the, the similarities continue. I think one of the things um, Mr. Davis learned uh, as as he had that um, quote unquote near death experience, you can't be in everybody's face so much. Uh, you can't own every issue. He used to love getting up in question period all the time and responding to everything. And as a result, when things went wrong, people tended to associate it with him and not with the minister. And as a result, um, the, the barnacles just kept accumulating and accumulating. And, you know, you can't have that for your leader. Um, and many people have made the observation that Kathleen Wynne uh, does the same thing. She's out there every day doing events, uh, making a lot of announcements, doing some you know, big consequential things that uh, obviously if you're a supporter, you like. And if you're not, you think she's in your in your face too much and getting in your business too much. So, yeah, there are a lot of similarities. And look at Bill Davis was 10 points down with a week to go in 1975. Uh, how he managed to win that election, you know, obviously was a mixture of uh, good luck, a, a good leaders debate. Um, and a great, um, you know, <laughs> busting a gut in the last week of the campaign to somehow turn it all around. Obviously, we're still 17 months away from the last week of the 2018 campaign when Kathleen Wynne will have to go back to the voters for uh, to renew her mandate. And, and I wouldn't even begin to take a guess at how that's all going to turn out. But, you know, she could do a lot worse than to to look at how Mr. Davis handled the end of his first term to figure out how to get things back on the rails. And I guess the other big similarity is Davis had to deal with uh, skyrocketing rent rates in the city yeah. of Toronto, and she's got to deal with skyrocketing hydro rates, uh, mostly in rural Ontario. So the way he tackled this big pocketbook irritant could be a bit of a, an example to her to, you know, staunch the wound as quickly as you can. Well, there's another similarity there, too, and that is that, of course, uh, you know, Bill Davis being uh, conservative really did not want to do something as interventionist as bring in rent controls. Uh, but, you know, it was either don't and lose or do it and have a chance to stanch the bleeding. And so he did. He stole the idea from the liberals and the New Democrats, brought it in. And, and that was one of the things that helped save the day. You know, similarly, Kathleen Wynne uh, basically stole the idea of taking the HST off electricity bills, uh, stole that idea from the NDP, um, implemented it, and we'll see if it has a similar impact. Hmm. So, okay, if that's what the liberals can learn from Davis, what about the conservatives? Uh, you note in your book that uh, he doesn't approve of the, uh, that Mr. Davis doesn't approve of the rightward drift and the nastier edge to politics. You know, the conservatives, uh, uh, sometimes they seem to have lost their the progressive uh, of the progressive conservatives. Uh, uh, what do you think that they can learn today from Bill Davis? 
Well, I certainly think that uh, the current leader, Patrick Brown, uh, understands Mr. Davis's place in the history of the province and the history of his party and takes pains frequently to say that he's, you know, a Bill Davis Tory. He, he likes to think of himself as a pragmatic conservative. Um, he's certainly sending out signals as often as he can that he's not an ideologue in the way that his predecessor, Tim Hudak, was. I don't say that with any uh, value judgment associated to it. Uh, Hudak was true to himself. Uh, that's where he wanted to take the province and the party. As it turns out, um, you know, uh, two elections in a row, the public was unwilling to follow him. And we'll see whether or not Patrick Brown can have any more success uh, when he goes to the polls in 17 months. Um, uh, you know, Bill Davis uh, obviously believes in a big center, right? He's not, he's not a right winger. He's also not as, uh, you know, the, the joke that goes goes around uh, political circles in Ontario is who was the first socialist premier of Ontario? And the answer is supposed to be Bob Ray. But of course, the joke is Bill Davis. And yeah, sure, there were some fairly left leaning interventionist things that Bill Davis did. We've talked about rent controls already. Uh, we talk about <laughs> we haven't mentioned the fact that he bought a 25 percent chunk of Suncor, the oil company, uh, to get a window on the uh, on the energy world. Um, you know, that was a pretty astonishing thing back then uh, to spend, I think, the, you know, I'm trying to remember what the equivalent would be in today's dollars, but hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to buy a chunk of an oil company. I mean, the conservative base had a hemorrhage when they found out about that. So, uh, you know, to be sure, um, the, the premier was pragmatic. And to the extent that he sees Patrick Brown being pragmatic and willing to sort of represent a big tent of the broad middle of Ontario, uh, I think Mr. Davis would approve of that. Okay, well, um, Steve, we'll let you go. Thank you so much for uh, this really great conversation. It was a really delightful book to read, and uh, the the personal spin and the research and the old uh, the old fashioned reporting that you put into it really told a wonderful story. Thanks, guys. Okay. Be well. Thanks again, Steve. Well. Cheers. Bye bye. Well, a big thanks to Steve Pagan for joining us. His latest book is Bill Davis, Nation Builder and Not So Bland After All, available from fine bookstores everywhere. Thanks for joining us for another episode. You can follow us on Twitter at armchairqbpod and at Tara T. Mahoney and at J underscore Scott underscore. As well, we've got a special deal for you. Uh, if you go to looneypolitics.com, you can gain $10 off your annual subscription to Looney Politics exclusive content by entering the promo code armchair. The site has some really must-read columns, including some crap by me. So go to Looney Politics and you can save up to 20% off your annual subscription with the code armchair. And tell your friends, post this on Twitter, on Facebook, on, I don't know, LinkedIn, um, and tune in next time for a discussion with someone else who's great and doing great things in Canadian politics. It's a surprise. See you guys next time.